part of the reason, okay, so here's the deal. Revelation, when you get to about chapter 5 to about chapter 19, it is filled with controversy in like the commentaries. So if you want to do something good on Revelation, um, sometimes it's just good to take all the commentaries out and read it and read it and read it and read it. And I did that last week. I did that this week. And uh, <laughs> it seems like the conclusion I keep coming uh, across is a little bit different than the mainstream uh, commentaries. So let me explain a little bit. Some of the, like I said, the largest controversy comes between chapter 5 and chapter 19. And here's why. It's the phrase, and then I saw, or then I witnessed. It, it may be a little bit different than in your translation, but if you look at Revelation, almost every single thing, John says, and then I saw this, and then I saw, and then I saw, and then I saw, and then I saw. And so it's hard to say, is that a delineation of time? Or did he look to the left and he saw this? Then he looked a little bit more, and then he panned here, and he panned here. Or then he looked up, and then he looked down, and then the angel directed him over here. It's hard to say that. And generally speaking, most commentators take that in a linear fashion, that Revelation 5 through 19 happens in a linear motion. The nice thing about that is you avoid a lot of the doom and the destruction in that. The trouble with that is if you look at the kind of the three sections that we have, we have 5 through 7, we have 8 through 11, and then we have 12 through 19 of chapters. They dovetail right on top of each other really well. For example, the how chapter, it's the beginning of chapter 8, so we'll read it today. Um, it's like verse 7. How it ends and how chapter 11 ends are almost the same wording. And it's almost actually like the same thing happening. So I don't know if it happens twice or if they laid on top of each other and this is, Chapters 5 through 7 is the big picture. Chapters 8 through 11 is taking one of that sections and opening it up and making it a little bit bigger. And then chapters 12 through 19 is pointing to the beast because it's mentioned in uh, chapter 11. I want to say it's verse 7, but I'm not 100% sure. But then chapters 12 through 19 describe what's going to happen during the period of the beast. And as I study this more and more, that's, that's more the style that I look at. And which, that's why I guess I go a little bit more mid-trib than pre-trib. If, if I went with a linear, I would definitely be more of a mid or a pre-trib kind of guy because in chapter 7, we're all going up. But I think when we see chapter 7 in a mid-trib, if that's toward the end, we're, we're at the, that three and a half years mark or so. That's when we're going to go up. And you see that also in chapters uh, 8 through 11. Uh, 11 looks like that's when the saints go up. And then um, 12 through 19, of course, you have everybody up. And the thousand-year reign uh, happens um, in chapters 20. And there's, there's controversy in that, too, the thousand-year range. But not, not near as much as as this midsection. And why is it? Because it hasn't happened yet. It is the future. I am, I am not 
I do my best to look at God's word for what it is. I try to take God's word literally, but it's hard to do that in the book of Revelation 100%. And you can't, I think, 100%. There's a lot of symbolism that goes in there. And so why would I even consider the layered approach? And here's a few reasons. We have a Jewish author writing in a Greek style. The apocryphic, I can't remember the, the name of the style, something like a, uh, apocryphic, thick, I don't know, something like that. I can't remember. Some new made-up word I made up there. Um, is a Greek style, but is a Jewish author. Well, anytime you read prophecy in, like, for example, you read the book of Isaiah. Isaiah talks about a lot, this happened, and then this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And then he gives you a little chunk of history. This is where all this happened, or it's going to happen in here. And then he goes, and then this is all going to happen. And he gives you a lot of prophecy. After chapter 31-ish, isn't that, there's a, there's a section of 15 chapters that Jesus quotes out of the most of the Bible, and it's in Isaiah there. Well, if you look at those sections, you, you dovetail them with Revelation, they go pretty hand in hand. And so as we've studied that in community Bible study a few years ago, it's been really healthy for me to understand um, that this is not anything new. Revelation is nothing new. It is just defined a little bit better, okay? So God always had this in his plan. God always had this in his workings, and he chooses now to give us a time to, to accept him personally. So that I've been calling the age of grace. I don't know if that's, it sounds good. I don't know. But what I mean by that is we have an opportunity to walk in God's grace. He is not bringing his judgment. Do we deserve judgment right now? Absolutely. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's grace. But Jesus took that punishment, God's wrath, and he put it on his shoulders so that we don't have to experience that. In Revelation is the time where he starts to pull off and allow that to fall back on our shoulders. And we'll get to that at the end of the sermon today. So why don't you open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 8. And we're going to read at the verse, first verse. And we know that Revelation is the end of God's story to man. Because God's word is God's story to man. It first starts with Jesus coming the first time and it ends with Jesus coming the second time. Is the great I am. And we know that Revelation calls us to obedience and now into repentance. Because if we repent of our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness that we might be called children of God, right? And if we're called children of God, we get his seal on us and we don't have to experience much of this. Why then do we need to study this? Because fear is a good motivator. You ever, you guys got, ever got kids before? You ever worked with kids before? Don't you do that. Don't you do that. You square up to them. You give them the, the how-to and what for. Don't you do that or else you're going to get it. Spanking, timeout, whatever your penalties are. And if they choose to do it, especially in defiance, as they look at you and they just go, bam, and they do it anyway, whew, you're going to get it. 
Well, that's what Revelation is about. God's children looking at him, and they do what they're not supposed to do anyway. And then they continue to worship the demons, the spirits, and things. How do I know that? Well, that's in the next chapter. <laughs> Yay! The good times here. So, as we look into Revelation chapter 8. Let's continue with our reading in verse 1. It says, When the Lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was silence throughout the heavens for about an hour. I see the seven... I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and they were given seven trumpets. Then another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar, and the, the great amount of incense was given to him to mix the prayers of God's people as offering on the gold altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's people ascended up to God from the altar when the angel had poured them out, and then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth, and the thunder crashed, and the lightning flashed, and there was great, terrible earthquake. Okay, so here's a good case. Here's why I can't definitively say that there is a stacked um, revelation prophecy, because... This line in chapter 2, it says, And then I saw, I saw the seven angels stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets, which clearly seems like it's after the, the seals. So I don't know when it comes down to it, but when I read the last few verses of chapter 11, it is the same as chapter 5, that closing of the book, the great the thunder, the lightning, the earthquake, the, the great and terrible day of the Lord is here, which we also see at the end of chapter 7 in the sixth seal, right? Wait for it to come, wait for it, boom. Seventh seal opens, uh, there's a pause, and now big things are happening, okay? So what's our point today? Where are we going? Jesus Christ is calling us to repentance, so we do not face the wrath of God. We need to take a self-examination and evaluate where we need to change. Right? It is always good to do self-examinations and evaluate where we need to change. One good way to do that is, you ever do tournament brackets before? Um, like when that NCAA tournament comes around, you, you come up with this tournament bracket. Well, look at things in your life that you like to prioritize. What are things that consume your time, maybe? That might be something that would be good. And you write TV, internet, Facebook, friends, schoolwork, job, things, listing, driving time, all these things. And you put these all, family, and your wife, your spouse, all these things that are important. Time with, your God, time, with God, time in prayer, time with, uh, in his word. And you match those up. You put them in randomly. You can even get a tournament uh, bracket thing, and it'll throw them all in there for you. And then you see which one has priority, which one should have priority. So you can do two different brackets. This one has priority. This one should have priority. How can I get, make my second bracket be priority where my, my first one is? And those are really good ways to do it. That's one way. Another thing is just m making out a list what do I want to have number one in my life after I make that list? And then you, you can rank those down like that. 
And okay, what really is number one in my life? And you rank them up. And then you say, how can I make those two switch? Okay, so it, it, it challenges us to change. When we self-evaluate and we look at these areas, that's how we do this. So one thing that we are praising God about is God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as we see in Hebrews 13.8, right? And we also find out, in, as we observe in these first five verses, that prayer is important, and the wrath of God is terrible. It's something that I don't want to experience. I think that's why as we... I'm not necessarily scared of what this world can offer, can do to me to harm me, but I am scared of what the Lord can do to me. I know that he can destroy me. He can make, he can make me suffer. If he really wants to, he can make me suffer. And that's scary. But guess what? That's also the beginning of wisdom, right? It is not, I do not have my, hand, my life in my own hands. I have my life in God's hands. And so if I really want to choose him, I need to put him as a priority. So many times we look at Jesus and we only see love. If you look at many TV preachers, they will only preach love. God's a good God. He would never do this to us. But also, yes, he will, right? If we don't choose God, then he, there are consequences for that. However, I, yeah, I, I think this is not a full picture of God being a God of love. I don't think it's a picture, full picture of, of Jesus, and I don't think it's a full picture of the Gospels. Jesus is a God of love, yes? Jesus loves us, doesn't he? I mean, the Bible tells us that, okay? If he is a God of love, then he has to be a God of justice, too. Because if you don't have justice, then you don't have true love because you don't have a true right and a true wrong, right? Because he desires us to walk out of our sins. He desires us to put him as priority and, and us as secondary. He desires us to desire the things that he wants us instead of the things of this world, which is tricky because sometimes we're like, well, is sin clearly defined? Yes, that's why he gave us his word. He gives us his word, and then he clearly defines what right and wrong is. That's exciting. So once we have that then, we find out that there's a war going on right inside of us. Right? How many people here are, are just like, man, I accepted Jesus. I'm just, I'm, I'm, a good, I'm good. I don't feel like I sin anymore. I don't want to sin anymore. And I'm just, I'm sin free. Right? That's ridiculous, right? Um, if, if anything, when we're, sin is defined, we want to do that sin even more. Well, how do you know that, Pastor? It's in, actually, it's in God's Word. It's in Romans chapter 7. He defines that struggle. The things that I don't that I know I'm not supposed to do, I do them anyway. What a wretched man I am. Is there any hope for me? And that's a great cliffhanger to leave it right there, right? And then he says, 
but there's no, therefore no condemnation, which there's, you're not going to be blamed for what you did wrong for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's chapter 8 of Romans. What a blessing to have Christ Jesus come in and intercede for us. And he is always interceding for us, isn't he? Look at him with Adam and Eve. Did he want to cast them out of the garden? No, they chose to be out. And he gives them a promise that I am interceding for you. I will make sure that there's a way for you to get back. Well, now we're looking at, fast forwarding to the end. And he says, you haven't chosen me through this age of grace. Now I need to throw down and let you know that I am all powerful, that I am the one that deserves of the worship and you need to turn to me. And it looks a little scary. So we need to understand that the wrath of God is there for a purpose. So when we desire to walk out of sin, he gives us his word to clearly define it. We come into this battle of right and wrong, this battle of our sinful worldly nature versus our nature found only in Christ Jesus. Now, here at White Rose, we accept and we know everybody's going through this battle, right? So to sit, for me to stand up here and say, well, I'm glad you guys are dealing with that. I have arrived. Right? If you ever get a preacher that ever says that, you need to run. Yeah, that's right. You're like, yes, I will never say that because I... I can guarantee I'm, I will never arrive. I'm too uh, goofy to, to arrive. And my wife is like, amen to that. That's right. But once, once we do arrive, we'll be in the presence of the Lord, right? We'll be in God's presence, and we will be able to rest in his peace and his understanding. So for those of you in the midst of the struggle, for those of you that are having a hard time with a particular sin, Take hope in the fact that we all struggle. That's why we have a body of believers to come together to work out, to find somebody you can trust and say, hey, will you pray for me on this and hold me accountable? That's awesome. That's what we're there for. So, therefore, when it comes down to the struggle, there has to be consequences for our choices. The ultimate punishment for our our sin is facing God's wrath. Revelation chapters 5 through 19 is God removing his hand of protection and humanity facing God's wrath. All right? In this process we see once again the value that God places on the prayers of the saints. Do we not? We it was mentioned early on in chapter 5, it's mentioned again here in chapter 8. God puts an extreme amount of authority in the prayers of, of his saints. He mixes it with the, the incense, and he pours it out onto the earth. And that the result is God's righteous anger hitting us with his wrath. Well, hopefully not us, because hopefully at this point we'll be gone, but who knows? Prepare for the worst, hope for the best kind of thing. 
This is consistent with God's prayer, or consistent with God's character. He values our prayers. He always has, and he always will, because he's unchanging. And if you look at the examples in the Old Testament, you can see when the saints prayed and he hears them, he lets them know he hears them. He does the same thing for us today. Sometimes we have to pray the same prayer for seven days. Sometimes it's seven minutes. Sometimes it's seven seconds. Sometimes it's seven years. Sometimes it's 70 years. But God hears our prayers, and he always gives an answer. And if it's in his will, it'll be in step with him, right? So take hope. If you're praying for, for that lost soul for, for a long, long time, God will answer those prayers as well. These prayers, they're ushered in the great and terrible day of the Lord. Whether these are the prayers of those that have suffered, um, that, that cried out to him earlier on in Revelation, or if they're the prayers of the saints of all time. I think, I kind of think they're a little bit of both. I think they're all like, Lord, return. Lord, come back. We need to remember how much God values hearing for us. We need to develop our prayer life in these four different ways. And there's four different blanks in your bulletin. The first one, how do you develop your prayer life? It's simple. You pray. It's that easy, right? Well, how do I pray? Pastor, you take your request to God. Is it important to ask God? Yes. Why? What, what does prayer have to do with anything? If God is knows everything, he knows what's going on, why does he have to hear from me? Because he allows things to be shifted and changed by us submitting to his will and coming alongside him and our will and his will, they dovetail together and they go together as one. And when his saints are in his will, mighty things happen. It's really amazing to see when you pray in God's will and you're like, wow, that was amazing to see what God just did. Well, yeah, because he's an awesome God and he wants what's best for us, does he not? So that's pretty exciting. And he invites us to inter intervene on our behalf or the, on behalf of the other saints. So as we grow in our prayer, the second one is develop our prayer life. One quick and easy tool to remember is the Acts style of prayer. You can either do cats or you can do Acts. Adoration first, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. So you praise God first, you confess your sins, you thank him for what he's given, what he's about to do, and then supplication is praying for your daily needs, your daily bread things, okay? Other people say that you have to confess before you praise God, so you, that would be cats, so you you confess your sins, and then you praise God, you thank God, and then you ask for your needs. Either one are, are very good. The third is less of you and more of God and others in your prayers. Okay? So you work, especially when it comes to supplication. If you need to pray, pray for yourself, you need to pray for yourself. But if you need yourself prayed for, you ask others to do it, right? 
That is responsibility of the church. We need to be lifting each other up in prayer, right? That's the importance of small groups. That's one of the major importance is sharing prayer requests to come before each other and getting a small group there that's going to care about you, that prays about you. And when you put in your time of prayer for other people and they put their time in for prayer for you, everything gets prayed for. But if you lack on your side, you're not just letting yourself down and, and getting to know the God's word, you're letting your small group down as well, right? So when we are not asking other people to pray for our needs, what are we saying? I got this. It's arrogance, right? It's not blatant arrogance. You're like, I would never be arrogant like that. But you are still, right? Because you're saying, I can handle this. I can, I can use my own power to get through this. And that's not right. We're supposed to depend on the church. That means we're vulnerable to the church. And that's really hard for a pastor to be, honestly. It's really hard for a pastor to be vulnerable to his congregation because they can use that as fuel to kick him out later, right? Well, that's why I give you plenty of fuel, <laughs> right? Because I'm not perfect, and we're not um, thinking that if I were to say that I was perfect or that I appear that I have it all together, that's arrogant, and I am not giving credit to the Lord. The only way I can get anything together is because of his power, because of his authority, and he needs to get the praise for that. Amen. Amen. So the other one is if we're not praying for others, right? So this isn't the fourth one yet. This is still tangent of three, okay? So if we're not praying for others, we're being selfish. I don't have enough time for my friends. I don't have enough time to that. I, I'm not disciplined enough to write it down on a card or put it in my phone and remember this prayer request. So therefore, you're not getting prayed for. Ouch. I'm only preaching what I know. <laughs> All right? I'm, I'm very good at forgetting prayer requests. I'm getting much better. But it was convicting this week to see um, this, to hear how Baruch talked about the authority of prayer and things. We'll get into a little bit more what he says in a minute. The fourth one is, is to pray without ceasing. What? Does it really say that in the Bible? It does actually say that in the Bible. Paul, Paul says to pray without ceasing. How do you pray without ceasing? Ceasing, that's a fun word to say. I kind of, I always think that's like Caesaring or something, but it's not, it's ceasing. So God becomes part of your conversation. You know that little voice in your head that when you're thinking through problems, you ever involve God in your problems then? What do you think about this? He usually has a right answer. He usually calms your mind so you can work through that problem faster and better. Sometimes he gives you an idea that you hadn't thought of before. When you invite God into your life, you allow him to mold your prayers to be less about you and more about him as well. 
right? Like we talked about in that. So not only are we coming into like, Lord, I got to get the grass mowed today. I got to pick up the kids. I got to, I got uh, to finish the sermon. We're going to get a refrigerator over at the, the thing. I got people coming on Friday. Now, those are all, I can in a sense say that I'm sharing that with the Lord as a prayer request that I need to get this done today. Or I could say, Lord, I want to thank you for allowing me to have all these responsibilities to get done today. And I'm going to trust your will that they get done. See the two different styles there? One was a little more shame-focused. The second one was definitely more God-focused. I'm working on that transition. I'm really good at being selfish, so... <laughs> I'm a professional at it, actually. Um, and that is our selfish nature. That's that struggle, right? And if we can work out of that, then Christ can do some amazing things. So this is what Baruch Corman had to say on prayer. The incense offering and the prayers of the saints. We need to pray in the spirit and not in the flesh. This is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 says this. And our prayers need to be prayed in a way that adhere to the laws, the statutes, and commandments of God, and also that they reflect a godly and righteous character. Now, one, if you don't pray, don't start on step four, okay? Start praying. Even if they're selfish requests, you're still submitting them to God. It's still an act of submission, right? So God will work on maturing you. He will mature your prayer requests. First and foremost, pray, pray, pray. It's important, okay? And then work on giving him the praise and the confession, thanksgiving, and things, okay? That, that will change your mindset on your prayer life. And then when you get down to the end, when you become a mature believer, then you want to make sure that God gets the praise, God gets the glory, God is awesome, and we are not, right? And that needs to be our attitude through life, in a sense. He must become greater, I must become less. That's what John the Baptist said in John chapter 3. So Christ is calling us to repentance, so we do not face the wrath of God, and we need to take a self-examination and evaluate where we need to change. Excuse me. So let's look at the first four trumpets. Let's look at the wrath of God being poured out now. Yes, we have the earthquake and things coming. I think that comes from the wrath of God. But this is where things start to get a little bit more dicey. And we even see it more dicey the second in chapter 9, the, the, the last three trumpets. That's when it starts attacking specifically God's people, or people, not necessarily God's people. Um, because that by that time we all have God's seal on us and things. But they start to attack people specifically, not just all creation. These hit all creation, okay? So verse 6, chapter 8. Then the seven angels with the seven trumpets prepared to blow their mighty blasts. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on the earth. One-third of the earth was set on fire. One-third of the the trees were burned, and all the grass, all the green grass was burned. Then the second angel blew his trumpet, and a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea. 
One third of the water of the sea became blood. One third of all things living in the sea died. And one third of all the ships in the sea were destroyed. Then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from the sky, burning like a torch. It fell on one third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was bitterness. It made one third of the water bitter, and many people died from drinking the bitter water. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and one-third of the sun was struck, and one-third of the moon, and one-third of the stars, and they became dark. And one-third of the day was dark, and also one-third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard a single eagle cry out as if it flew through the air, and it cried, Terror, 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 or, or woe, woe, woe. To all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. God's wrath is calling us to repentance. God's wrath is calling us to repentance. He wants us to turn from our evil ways and turn to him. Well, why? God detests sin. He cannot it cannot be in his presence, and he is calling us out of it. Come out of your wicked ways. Come out of the ways that you think are right. Come and be holy as I am holy. Well, Shane, you just said that we can't be holy because we have this struggle that goes on. Right? But we have moments of holiness. and we have a, a, When we choose to repent, we're cleaning our slate. We're back in good relationship with him. Okay, and when we're in good relationship with him, he is faithful and just to take care of that, right? So, first, in love by sending his son to die for us is one of the ways he called us out of sin. And then, by his wrath, sin cannot be in his presence. God is holy, he is pure, he will not be tainted by our sins. And if we're unwilling to let go of our sins via his grace, perhaps we'll let go via his wrath. The result is the seven trumpets. They're similar to the seven seals that we already have seen. And so here are some of the highlights that we see in Revelation chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. We see one-third coming up a lot, right? And if you look into the numbers, the symbolism, what does the one-third mean? It means a partial judgment. God's not going to wipe out everything, but he's going to make it hard for those that are still here. And there's definitely going to be a judgment. We're going to see it. That's what the one-thirds mean there. We're also in a series of seven again. And this points to God's sanctification. He is cleansing the earth of some of how it's been destroyed in the, and affected by sin throughout. It also parallels the ten plagues of Egypt, and that's going to be the closing point that we have today. And then we have the warning of the three tares, and the three tares go along with the last three trumpets as well, which we'll study a little bit more next week. And that's craziness, let me tell you. So, so as much as God detests sin, 
He also loves us, doesn't he? He loves us that much. So he hates sin so much. He loves us so much. We have a paradox because we love to sin. Oh, man. So God loves us so much that he wrote a letter ahead of time to warn us when it comes to his judgment. If you keep sinning like this, judgment is going to come. This gives us time that we can get right with the Lord. And we may ask, well, when is, when is the Lord coming back? Well, we see it in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 11 says, But you have, must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. Because God's not bound by time, right? Okay? The Lord isn't really, isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake, or maybe for your neighbor's sake that we need to reach out to, right? He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and then the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything in it will be found to deserve judgment. We have an opportunity to surrender to God who loves us and wants what's best for us before we face his wrath. It is our responsibility to make that choice to choose him. It's not God's responsibility to choose him. He presents the evidence. He presents the grace. He presents the miracles even today, doesn't he? It is up to us to surrender, to submit to him, and say, you are Lord. In a sense, we become knights of his kingdom then, right? Because Christ Jesus is calling us to repentance so we do not face the wrath of God. We need to take a self-examination and evaluate where we need to change. And finally, from trumpets to plagues. I saw this parallel. It was mentioned several times, and I was like, wow, i got to look into this. So I did, and I looked into it more and more and more, and then I went and just like, all right, I just got to parallel these two passages next to them for my own sake because some people were saying these and this and that, and I'm like, well, there's a better reference right here. And Anyway, this is what I came up with, okay? Finally, we see several parallels between the plagues in Egypt and the trumpets in Revelation 8 through 11. Exodus chapter 7, verse 20. The Nile turns to blood, right? In Revelation chapter 8, verse 7, we have hail mixed with blood. And in verse 8, we see one-third of the sea becomes blood. Okay? Revelation chapter 11 Verse 6, I think, the two witnesses have the power to turn the seas to blood as well. Then we, all, we have hail. Okay, This would be the seventh plague. Revelation chapter 8, verse 7, again, hail and fire and blood all comes all at the same time. Then we have the plagues 3, 4, 5, and 8, which would be lice, swarms, sometimes it's called gnats, pestilence, and locusts. Well, 
We're going to study this next week a little bit, so I'm not going to get into a ton, but Revelation chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, the demon locusts that are released from the pit of hell, they pretty much sum all these four up. (laughs) They look nasty, they sound nasty, and they are nasty, and they're not supposed to touch any of the earth, only the people that have turned away from God, right? And if you look at this, this is the separation where you start to see the first ones affect everybody, okay? The first ones that we've talked about today, they're going to affect everybody. It's going to be terraforming the earth through earthquakes. We're going to have um, things falling from the sky and things. It's going to affect everyone. But once we get into the next part, just like we saw in the plagues, the first three or four, I think it's a four, four or five plagues, they affect even the Israelites, Okay? Because they were turning away from their gods, and they got rid of their idols, and they put them away, and they, got, they took them out of their house, and they made God a priority in their life. And God separated the land of Goshen from the land of Egypt. So here we have the same thing. The people that have God's seal on their forehead, they don't have to worry about these locusts. And as we're going to find out next week, they look pretty nasty. We also see these four plagues coming up a lot in Revelation chapter 16, which would be that third dovetail as they stack on top of each other. Then we look at the ninth plague, which was darkness fell on the land of Egypt. Can't explain it. Don't know how it's done. We see that in verse 12 of Revelation 8. A third of the, the sun, moon, and stars become dark. The day becomes darker. The night becomes darker. I don't know how the night becomes darker, but it's going to and it's gonna be a felt darkness, I really think. And then finally, the death of the firstborn, which is the 10th plague. You see this a little bit in uh, Revelation chapter 11, verse 7. It's the conquering and the killing of the two witnesses. And we're going to talk about that perhaps next week. I'm not sure if I'm going to do 9 through 11 altogether. But when you look at the two witnesses, if you look at that, that's a reference to Zechariah chapter 4. The two witnesses, as we've discovered back when we studied Revelation chapter 3, the church of Sardis, the two witnesses, I believe, are, are symbols of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Okay, And then we see them being conquered and raised again, uh, which is a symbol of Jesus as well there. So um, it's just interesting I don't think it's Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the two witnesses, but I think there will be two actual people that kind of represent the the Spirit of God because they're going to be in His temple, okay? Where do we know God's temple is today? It's in our hearts, right? He, He wants to be in our hearts, dwelling with us, in our souls. So why did God send the plagues of Egypt? Why'd you bring this up, Pastor House? Come on. Well, here it is. Because God was declaring that he was bigger than all gods. Who are the gods of America today? Who are the gods of the United States? We are, right? We're our own little gods. We become our own gods. And that's, that's dangerous. It's also called narcissism, <laughs> right? We're all narcissistic because we all want to have our little piece of the pie. And that is dangerous. OK? 
Okay? So that's why we have to humble ourselves, come before a holy God and cleanse us from that unrighteousness, confess that sin, right? So in in the Egypt, they had hundreds of gods. They had the God of the sun, they had God of the land, the God of the river, God of the frogs, God of all these things. Excuse me, God of crops. And each one of these ten plagues combated the ten most powerful gods of Egypt. And God says, I'm bigger than all your gods. I am stronger than all your gods. Return, repent, and turn to me, and you will live. You will have life. And of course, we know that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he, he didn't listen. And that's exactly what we see happen in Revelation 2. The people's hearts are hardened, and they turn away. The plagues were a call for God's people to turn and repent, to separate themselves from the things of this world and to be with God, to have a relationship with God. God doesn't want to be over us. God doesn't want to be under us. God doesn't want to be the candy machine that's, oh, you can have this, 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 this. He doesn't want to be the mission. I'm doing this for you, God. Look at me go. Because ultimately, that's about yourself again. He wants to do life with you. He wants to be a part of your family. He wants to be the one that's guiding you. What do you think, God? What do you think I should do in this situation? Follow me. Walk along. In step with me. It'll go well with you. But I stumble and fall, God. I, I, I don't always, I'm not always there. I know. And for that, we wash your hands. We wash your feet. And then we get back up and we walk together with each other again. Right? He doesn't run out in front of us so that we can never reach him. He doesn't wait behind us and say, oh, I'm not moving until you, till you do whatever you're supposed to do. He walks with us, right? God is steady. He's never changing. He doesn't stray away from the line. That's us. And then we come back. Like, oh, hey. <laughs> and sometimes when we stray so far away, what happens? He comes after us. He picks us up and he brings us back to him. So God doesn't punish us to be mean. God doesn't send his wrath to be mean, but to allow the full weight of our sins to hit our shoulders so that we might wake up and allow him he's to intervene in a sense because he's, he's lifting his hand up and saying, I'm not going to intervene for your sins anymore. This is the wrath. This is what it's going to feel like because what's hell going to be like? It's going to be hundreds of times worse than God's wrath is on earth when he removes it 100% of the time and we feel the whole wrath. We, we like to say, well, sin's not that bad. Well, that's because God's grace is on us still, right? When he removes it, we get to understand how bad sin is because God, Jesus, is doing all the heavy lifting for us. God's wrath has just as much to do with him removing his punish, his protection from Satan as it does from him removing his hand and allowing the punishment to come. How do you know that, Pastor House? You're going to find that out next week, actually, in chapter 9. So what do we have? You know, we could get into chapter 9. 
No, we'll wait till next week. But remember, when Jesus Christ is calling us to repentance, he's calling us so that we do not face his wrath. And we need to self-examine and find out, evaluate where we need to change because he wants us to be in relationship with him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for holding back your wrath. We thank you for allowing us to turn away from you. Lord, we thank you for your repentance, for, for cleansing us of our unrighteousness. And Lord, we want to give you the glory. We want to give you the accolades, the praise for what we know. And so we pray in the words of Ephesians. It says, Now to him who is able to do more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be all glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all the generations forever and ever. Amen. And to those who have accepted the Lord as their Savior, I pray this prayer to you. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. And to that end, may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind. In Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.